Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I'll put the veggie tail in. No, got to do Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 43. If your Bibles are open, Luke chapter 9, verse 43 through 50, just seven verses. Let's take a look at these together. Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 43. If you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand and someone can get you one. If you don't have one, you're welcome to keep the one that you just received. Verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all these things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him, in, uh, set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him. For he who is not against us is on our side. Lord, we ask again for your spirit to speak to every heart, every ear. Lord, may we grow to be more like you in this time this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little boy named David, age four, he came running out of his bathroom to tell his mom that he dropped the toothbrush in the toilet, but he couldn't get it out. So his mom went in, and she was more experienced at getting, you know, it falls down under that hole there. She fished and got the toothbrush out and then threw it immediately into the wastebasket. David stood there a moment, and he ran to the bathroom and came out with mom's toothbrush. <coughs> Held it up and said, well, we better throw this one out too because it fell in there a couple days ago. Some lessons seem to be self-explanatory, but not always with children, right? They have to be taught that once this happens, you actually don't use said toothbrush again. And for Jesus, all of us are like little children. We're ignorant of a lot of things. We think we know a lot. We think we understand a lot. We think we know how things work. And Jesus is looking at us, shaking his head sometimes like he did with the disciples. Not, not, again, not shaking his head like we would and kind of, you idiot, something like that. But shaking his head like you have a lot to learn. The disciples were that way. They have things to learn. There's things that, that Jesus has presented to them that maybe went over their head. There's things that they really need to understand. This is the way you do it. This is the way I want you to operate. This is the way I want you to act. This is acceptable. This is not acceptable. This kind of behavior, this kind of attitude. Um, all of us here, every one of us we got up this morning, we're older now than when we got here, right? Some of us, like me, probably have an extra gray hair that I didn't even have earlier this morning. As you get a little bit older, uh, you know, when it comes to maturing, uh, in life, we kind of go, from a physical standpoint, we kind of go like this, and then like this. We reach a high point. You know, there's no 60-year-old uh, current lightweight champions of the world, right? No one that's in the top contenders in any uh, boxing or wrestling or anything else, none of them are 65-year-old men, right? Because we actually begin to uh, wind down. But spiritually speaking, we can always continue to grow. We can always continue to become more like Christ. We can always continue to know, oh, I don't actually use toothbrush anymore after it goes in toilet. I've learned that that's not what I do, that I've grown beyond these things, and the Lord wants us to continue to mature. You know, if you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Maturing as Disciples, Maturing as disciples. Uh, Proverbs 12.1. I love this verse. I've mentioned it before. The kids will really like it because it has a word. They'll be like, that's in the Bible? 
Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Yeah, I, you can say that in the right context. You don't walk, walk around telling people, but usually we want to think of that as it applies to ourselves. You ever do something, you say, that was really stupid. You're not talking to, you're just talking to yourself. Just talking to yourself. That was really dumb. And the Lord wants us to grow beyond doing things that our flesh just naturally does. It seems right to us, but the Lord says, that's not my disciple. That's not the way I want you to operate. I want you to be like me. We'll look at three things from the text that Jesus uh, points out here. He gives three little minuets, if you will. We'll look at all three of them. Number one is searching. He wants us to be people that search. Number two is serving. He wants us to be people that serve. And number three is strengthening. He wants us to be people that strengthen others. All three of those things Jesus touches on ever so briefly, and we'll touch on them briefly here this morning. Let's look at the first one uh, from the text, starting in verse 43. If you're taking notes under uh, the title of searching here, uh, they were all amazed at the majesty of God. Remember, he's just in the previous teaching. He's just healed a boy that was possessed. Uh, he touched and healed this boy miraculously, cast the demon out of him. Everyone's amazed. Everyone marvels. And then he tells them in verse 44, let these words sink down into your ears. You know, a lot of things, we, they touch our ears, but they don't really sink in. And sometimes as parents, we have to say that. Make sure this sinks in. We have to say it to ourselves. Uh, the older I get, trying to remember like a phone number. Let this sink in, let this sink in. I have to requote seven, three, you know, before I can actually type it in and make sure I've saved it. Let it sink in. Let ourselves not just be able to quote it for a second, but remember it. And Jesus said, I want this to sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, he's told them this before. You'll recall already in the ninth chapter, Jesus said this, also, he told them in verse 22, uh, same chapter, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. Every time Jesus would mention this, they'd have a blank stare. Over the head, what's he talking about? But we get some more insight. Not only was it hidden from them, and yes, the Lord did kind, the Lord did hide it from them for a season, but also they were responsible for it being hidden at the same time because Luke makes this clear to us. If you're saved, if you're saved, you already know the truth. You already know the truth. You know and are known by Christ. You know that he is the way, the truth. You know the Lord and he knows you. But as glorious as that is, is that where it stops? Is that where it stops? Did it stop that for you? I mean, for me, I, I got saved in 1995. Is that where it stopped? I, I knew that, and that's all I needed to know. It is the most important thing to know, because if I walked out of that building back in 95 and died, that would be the only thing that would really matter, that truth. But that is that where it all stops? No. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, who doesn't lack wisdom? That's a rhetorical question. If any of you lacks wisdom, James, nice way of saying, all of you lack wisdom. We all lack it. We all need to learn more. We all need to grow more. The apostles were that way. We're that way. The disciples, they knew Jesus personally. Now, I know you and I know him personally. We know him personally through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, personally through his word. He resides in our heart. We do know Christ personally. It's the greatest testimony. No one can ever take that away from us that we know him personally. But I've not met Jesus physically. I've not touched him like they did. I've not sat beside him and had a meal. They were in his presence physically, just as you and I know him personally, but they were in his presence physically. They knew him. He knew them. He revealed tremendous truths to them, unprecedented truths, truths that no one had ever taught anyone Jesus would teach. And Jesus was telling them once again, he's telling them the entire reason he came to the earth. 
What was the reason he came to the earth? To go to Jerusalem and give his life a ransom for many, to shed his blood on a Roman cross. That's why he came. That's why he said, I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me. I'll be raised the third day. And here again, he says, I am about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But he's telling them the very reason he came, and the very reason he came was to save their souls. Their souls, our souls. And yet, when he revealed, with a command, I might add, what would happen to them, the command was what? Let it sink deep into you. Let it sink down. Let this sink deep into your ears. That was the command. Because I I want you to be listening closely. Let it sink way in. He gives the command. What would happen to them? They didn't understand. But not only did they not understand, they didn't seek to understand. And they were afraid to try and find out. There's so many things in life that we don't understand immediately. I might not understand something that someone's going through, but I can start to ask and know a little bit more how I can better pray for them. Or I can just not care. Or I can seek to understand. Any of you ever taken management classes? One of the things they'll teach you is seek to understand. You can't help people if you don't understand where they're at. But you also can't understand what the Lord's saying if you don't want to understand what he's saying. If you push it away. Now the Lord in his providence, um, he knows where they're at. He knows they're afraid to ask. He knows why they're afraid to ask what all this means. But in his providence, he'll even use this temporary roadblock. Aren't you glad that God uses our temporary roadblocks still, still pushes us past them? Those times where we should have been praying and asking and then we weren't. But we'll see elsewhere that even though they have this um, opportunity to understand, each and every time, they're afraid to ask or don't want to ask. I, I'm comfortable with not knowing what you're talking about, Lord. The Lord desires that we would always seek and always know the full measure of his revelation, whatever that is for that time. And, and it will be different at different times in your life. The Lord may reveal some things to me now at 45 that he didn't reveal to me at 35. Because... God knows what we need for each progressive season in our life. But he does want us to seek the full revelation of what he has for us at that time, to be desiring to know all that the Lord would have us to know and understand, not for knowledge's sake, but for transformation of our life's sake. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He's telling us, he's telling us specifically, Keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. If at first you don't understand, keep asking me. Keep seeking. How much more does God want you and me to know? How much more does he want us to know? Well, he says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, which you're doing here this morning. He wants us to continue to learn at his feet, continue to study his word, continue to learn, continue to apply these things. But the question is, do we want to know more, or are we quite comfortable with what we already know? A lot of people are very comfortable. I know what I know, and that's all. I don't really need to know anything else. That's, I know everything I need to know that actually matters. According to who? According to us or according to God? Because really, our vote doesn't count, does it? He's telling them, let this sink deep into your ears. They're saying, we're closing our ears. Who's right, Jesus or them? I want you to understand this. We're afraid to ask and don't want to ask. We're comfortable right where we're at. Are we saying, well, we'll let the really, really spiritual people keep learning and searching. Let the really spiritual people, they're the ones that are supposed to study this stuff, not me. I'm good with what I know. Remember that old mentality, I have my little, I have my little shack in glory, I'm happy right? That little shack is up there waiting for me. Careful with that thinking. That shack might not be there if that, you know, if you just, you know, we want to count on, uh, I have all that I need. I just need this little bit. No, God puts it in our hearts to continue to learn, 
continue to grow. Well, I know John 3.16, there's nothing else I need to know. Yes, John 3.16 is important. It's important that we come to Christ in salvation, but that's not where it stops. Remember Hebrews 5.12, you were with us this summer. We went through just a couple of uh, uh, Wednesday nights in Hebrews. Hebrews 5.12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk instead of solid food. The writer of Hebrews says many of you should already be teaching other people, and you're not, because you were satisfied. I know enough. I'm stopping right there. They're still saved. I know all I need to know. I don't need to know anymore. That's for somebody else. And it was for all the disciples that Jesus wanted to sink down. It's for all of me wanted to ask, ask me. I just gave you a huge truth. I gave you the number one reason I'm coming to the earth, and not a single one of you want to know? No, we're comfortable right where we're at. I'm sure, I'm sure all that means something good. It'd be a rough day at the cross, wouldn't it? It means something great. It means something uh, amazing. It means something life-saving, but nobody asks. And see, not studying not seeking, not asking the Lord, actually sends us backwards. Our faith gets weaker. If we're not pressing into the Lord, we're drifting away. Are we afraid that asking and seeking for revelation, are we afraid that when we ask the Lord for more, to understand more, to have the Scriptures be open to us, if, are we afraid that asking and receiving more of it will make us more accountable and cost us more? Is that what we're afraid of? That if we know more and are revealed more, that will make us more accountable, it's going to cost us more? Uh, well, it will. That's true. To whom much is given, much is required. The more that we know, the more accountable we are. And the Lord will hold us more accountable. But it's not just that. As our accountability and responsibility grows, here's the good part. The power of the Holy Spirit in our life grows with it. Right? This is why some believers are completely not afraid of death whatsoever. It's why some Christians could step into the Roman Colosseum and not, I mean, you, you would say, well, they must be petrified. No, they're not. Not at all. Because God has given them more of himself for such a time or an hour like that. And the more we seek to know, and the more the Lord reveals us, He'll give us equal measure, and in fact, more power with that. So the things that used to bother you wouldn't bother you anyway. The things that used to tempt you won't tempt you anymore. I mean, some things, you'll always deal with some things, but over time, God gives you victory. That as the more you press in, the more He reveals, the more you're saying, I'm not afraid of that anymore. I'm not bothered by that anymore. I'm not offended by that anymore, whatever it may be. In Jude 1.20, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. Building up. The Lord doesn't want us to be falling back in fear and complacency, but moving forward in faith and in confidence. Okay, I'm not going to use a football analogy this morning, just so you know. I'm going to use a NASCAR one. I figure Richmond has two races, why not use a NASCAR analogy? Let's say you've learned at a very young age to race a car. You've learned at a young age to race a car. You're actually good at it. You have a desire to improve. You have a chance to train with the best. Other people even notice your abilities. You have a chance to train with the best. But at the highest levels, the speeds are higher, the tracks are more dangerous, the conditions are tougher, the competition's way tougher, there's more pressure, and by the way, there's way more criticism when you fail, the higher you go. Way more criticism. All of those things, are they all true? They're all true. More dangerous, more speed, more criticism, more pressure. And yet, we can't be led by fear, can we? Nobody that succeeds there is led by fear. True? They don't have that. They've 
put that under them. The fear, put it behind. The Lord wants us to be delivered from that, to ask the Lord for these things. Not only will I reveal it to you, I'll give you the strength to go forward, and you won't be afraid of these things that now I've shown you, but you'll actually still have the confidence that God is, he really is in control of the whole world, right? My, my pastor in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina used to say, I ain't leaving this world one second sooner than God has predetermined. Not a second sooner. But everything else in life, whatever the Lord determined, we know he's in control. A.W. Tozer said, a scared world needs a fearless church. He said, a scared world needs a fearless church. That's not what we have. I told you 90% of the pastors are afraid to say things that they know the Bible says because they're afraid what people will think about them, about the church, and they'd rather instead people be uninformed of God's truth. Not right. We need to be fearless. We need to ask the Lord, what do you want me to do with this information? How do you want me to apply it? How do you want me to share it? We need to be studying his word, being in prayer. That's what gives us faith. It's in the pressing in the Lord, in asking him, in learning, that actually takes us from fear and into faith and into action. We grow, we ask, we understand, and we go. We grow, we ask, we understand, and we go. We have to ask God, what does this mean? And understand it, let it sink down, and then go in faith and say, Lord, you own the results. By the way, none of the apostles were crucified on the day of the cross. True? They were petrified. They did die later, but when they died later, none of them had any fear of it. God gave them and Corey Ten Boone used to say, Dad, what will we do if the Nazis come, if the Nazis come and they take us away? And he says, when you go to the bus station, I think it was the bus station, it was either bus, I think it was the bus or maybe the train. When you go to the station, do I give you the money for the fare days earlier or just before it's time for you to go? And she said, you give it to me right when it's time to go. And says, that's how God works. You'll get the bus fare right when you need it. But you still have to ask, Lord, what do these things mean? Philippians 3, 12 and 13 says, Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on, reaching forward, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Is the alternative of sitting down, finding a perceived holding pattern, remember I said perceived holding pattern, rather than seeking more of the knowledge and wisdom of God, rather than seeking, Lord, what do these things mean? Is that really an alternative? Is that really an alternative? Does anyone think the Lord will bless that? The Lord's going to bless that I'm not, Lord, I don't want any know anymore. Comfortable right where I'm at. Don't want to grow beyond this. Don't want to grow beyond the fear I have. Don't want to grow beyond the complacency, comfortability, whatever it may be. I'm fine right there. Or is that our own self-made thinking that we talked about in our Wednesday study of the foolish prophets? Self-thinking what we've come up with, but not found in Scripture. No. That's absolutely our own thinking. The Lord won't bless that. He blesses when we follow His counsel, His wisdom, the things He reveals. Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is He who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. You take the book of Revelation. I've heard Christians say, I don't like reading the book of Revelation because it bums me out or it scares me too much or it's just a bunch of bad news. You ever heard that? I've heard Christians tell me, I don't even read the book of Revelation. Now, do we actually think that Jesus Christ revealed himself in the book of Revelation to bum out his followers? Think about that. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he wrote that to bum us out and make us afraid. No, when I read the book of Revelation, I get the opposite. By the end of the chapter, you're, you're, like, uh, you're like standing up, jumping up and down. You realize that Jesus has not only, is not only going to win, but he's already defeated all the forces of evil. It gives you great confidence, not the other way around. 
The Lord wants us to press in. Understand these things. The Christians in Berea in Acts chapter 7, verse 11, and they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were so. And by the way, they are so. They would search and know more, and their faith would be strengthened. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, asking the Lord in prayer, what do these things mean? Lord, what does it mean to me? What are you saying directly to me? Are we going deeper in our prayer? Are we seeking to understand what God wants to do in our life? Are we seeking his wisdom? Are we seeking his counsel? Are we seeking his direction for every question in life? I have things all the time that, uh, what should I do about this or this afternoon? Or, what, Lord, what do you want me to do? Ask. Sometimes I don't get an immediate answer. I have to open the word and like, give me an answer through your word. Lord, do you, you know, some of you might, you know, week after week, we've talked about the Bonaire ministry. We go and meet, reach these young kids. God's telling some of you to go. Well, I don't know if he is. Well, there's a good way to find out. You start asking. Well, what if he says yes? That's exactly why we don't ask. Why do you think the disciples didn't ask? What if he tells us stuff that we're not going to want to hear? I know what we'll do. We just won't ask. And then we are exonerated because we didn't ask. It's easier to ask for permission than, uh, forgiveness than permission, right? No. What if God wants you to send that note to a relative sharing your testimony? What if he wants you to make a meal or visit the sick? Uh, I believe he wants us to do all these things, not all at the same time, not all the same day, not all the same person, but each of us should have, be asking the Lord, what, what is it you're telling me through this passage? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to give a gift to that missionary family? I just found out this morning, I was listening to Pastor Doug Souter at Calvary Fort Lauderdale, um, Samaritan's Purse. You can give $10, and it's a medical kit for a family uh, in West Africa. $10. wonder if you ask the Lord, should I do that or have another latte? What might he say? No, I want you to have 10 more lattes, please. I'm not all that concerned about people dying in a, a, of Ebola, but I really want you, have you tried the new pumpkin spice? God doesn't market for Starbucks, but he does plead for souls, doesn't he? He does plead for the things that matter. I'm not against Starbucks, by the way. I wouldn't even know about that if it wasn't for that. But I don't go there often. It's not something that... Anyway, their coffee's too burnt to me anyway, but that's just another thing. <laughs> but let's not be afraid of God's guidance. Let's not be afraid of his guidance. Let's trust it. Trust and obey, for there's what? No other way. The disciples had to trust that he was going to give them good news, not news that was going to be harmful to them. Where the Lord guides, as Pastor Chuck said for years, he will provide. That means the means, the strength, the peace, the protection, the resources. Let's look at serving. Serving here, well, they don't ask. Jesus doesn't press it, and they move on to the next scene or the next setting. He just kind of lets that lie for, their, for that time. He'll come back to these things. By the way, the things that you ignore, God's not done with. He'll come back to them. It's not any test we don't pass, that test keeps getting presented to us. You realize that, right? Well, eventually I'll stop getting, no, it doesn't work that way. He'll come back to it. He won't forget. We may try and forget. But they move on to the next scene. And so the disciples, they move on, and a dispute arises among them. Now, apparently, Jesus is not around when they're having this great theological discussion about each other. He's not around, but he knows about it because he knows, well, anything. So he perceives their thoughts. He knows what they have been talking about. They decide not to ask Jesus what it means about being betrayed because they're afraid of what they're going to hear. So what do we see in this next scene? Well, they move on to something that we're all innately good at, though it's something the Scriptures warn us not to do, and that's they begin comparing themselves one to another. We're all good at this. 
in your life, you will thousands of times compare yourself to someone else. And if the Holy Spirit pricks your heart, you'll stop doing it. Right? We always compare ourselves. That's the way the world, the world finds its own satisfaction. Am I better than the other person? Am I more attractive than the other person? Am I stronger than the other person? Am I faster than the other person? Am I smarter than the other person? And this still happens even with believers. And they even will actually judge, am I more spiritually gifted than them? I think I am. I think I'm a much better, I'm a much better teacher than they are. And when I pray, God reveals major things to me, and reveals really minor things to them. And they would never, none of us would ever voice it that way, but we walk around like that in our hearts and our attitudes at times, don't we? We're innately good at this. It's natural. It's in our flesh. But for the disciples, worse than comparing their gifts and their talents and their achievements and their abilities, they've actually gone to another level. They're actually arguing about future success. Which one of us is going to have a legacy like no other? Which one of us will the world remember as even greater than John the Baptist? It's not just success, but who will be the greatest? Folks, we're here on earth as believers to pursue godliness, not greatness. We're to pursue godliness, not greatness. Let the world pursue greatness. We pursue godliness. That's, in, that's found in 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. 1 Timothy 4, 7, 1 Timothy 6, 6, 2 Peter 1, 3, 2 Peter 3, 11. You get the point. The scripture is clear for us to pursue godliness, not greatness. Furthermore, I love Titus 2, 13 says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's only one good, there's only one great, and that's God. Not me, not you, not Billy Graham, right? Not anyone that's ever done anything for the Lord of any significance. They're not great. They were greatly used, but they themselves are not great. All glory will be given to the Lord. All the crowns will be thrown at the feet of Jesus, everything. People take such pride in what they have done spiritually physically, and everything else. But God says, in the body of Christ, it's not that way. You're all equal. You know, I might, we might find some blue eyes more attractive, but the kidney's still pretty important, isn't it? Right? One has more exterior value to us, but try and live without a kidney. Right? Those things matter. The things that can't be seen matter. Uh, we are instruments and utensils in God's hands. I mean, think about it. Which is greater, bowls or plates? Which is greater, knives or forks? Or spoons? Which is greater, hammers or saws? It depends on what you need at that moment, doesn't it? When you need a saw and all you have is a hammer, you'll think saws are greater. When you need a hammer, or vice versa, when you need a fork and all you have is a knife, you'll think forks are greater. The situation God dictates all of us have certain value to him, but we can't compare. I'm better because I'm a knife. I'm a really sharp knife, too. I'm a Cutco. You're Target brand, whatever, you know. These things... God determines the value of each thing, but we should not be comparing ourselves one to another. And so what does Jesus do? He takes a little child. He, hears, he knows their thoughts. He knows the great discussion they're having. So he takes a little child. Of all things, he takes a little child, and he sets a little child down from. Now, if you know anything about ancient Israel, you know that as far as men that had any kind of religious setting, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. They did not mess around. Children were ladies' work. That was, that was servants took care of kids. Kids were to be seen and not heard. These men held 
they sat at the city gates with the other men. They had a different paradigm. Now today, we run. Our, as a matter of fact, some people worship their children. That was not the case with these guys. They, they had conversations that were deep, man to man. And if you were going to be any kind of serious religious leader, you were well thought of by the other men. But you were not down there in the toddler room handing kids Cheerios like some servants in churches all across America are doing this morning, right? We're gifted teachers. Let somebody else slice bananas for the kids, right? Let somebody else get out another box of goldfish for them. Let someone else teach them a little song like Jesus Loves Me. That's for, that's for low... I mean, again, this is, what, this is what they would have thought, religious leaders, someone else. Now, it was true in Jewish culture, when a boy reached the age that he would become a man, then he would enter into apprentice work, right? And that would be, that would be the time when men would begin to really uh, teach and disciple or train, whether it was work responsibilities, religious responsibilities, whatever it was. But Jesus, he actually flips the script. He says, he takes a little child and he says, this is actually the best representation of the way I want your ministry to look. I want you to be outside the norm. I want you to minister to people that other people think is beneath you. I don't want you to carry big titles. By the way, a four-year-old doesn't care if you're a CEO or a janitor. They don't know to be impressed by that. And we shouldn't be impressed by that. Amen? We should not be more impressed with some people than other people. God says he's no respecter of persons. So Jesus takes a little child. By the way, children, they have, a, before we kind of really mess them up at times, they naturally will hear the things of God. And we have to have the assumption that everyone has a heart and a conscience that they will hear the things of God. We start to believe that no, everyone's jaded, no one will hear anything, no, no one's going to listen anyway. Instead, we have to think that the whole world actually still can hear from God because everyone's children to God. True? We have to have the humility to go low. D.L. Moody started his ministry by just reaching the poorest kids in Chicago, the poorest children in Chicago. He went and reached them, and at, at one time, at, early on, they had a, over 3,000 kids in the Sunday school ministry because he didn't care that other, more intelligent, well-respected pastors that were in these ivory tower churches that wouldn't go down and meet people at the lowest level say, well, that, no, no, our ministry is to adults that actually want some deep, 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 deep teaching. And Jesus is like, that's not what the world needs. Just like kids need someone to feed them, the whole world needs someone to reach out to them. He said, your ministry is not going to be arguing about who's greatest. I want you to meet needs where the kids, they got peanut butter and jelly all over their face. Where they don't wash their hands. Where they don't know that the toothbrush doesn't go back in after it goes in the toilet. You're going to have to teach these things. You're going to have to go low in the ministry. This is, what, uh, this is why we do Vacation Bible School. We had over 100 kids this summer. It's why we go to Hilliard House where these single moms are at. It's for the heart of the Lord to, for us to meet uh, an open door. We can meet entire households. By the way, when you receive children, you often get to receive their parents too. Isn't that great? When you receive children, you get to receive their parents as well. Not every time, but oftentimes. That's what Bridge of Hope does in India. But as Christ places this child right beside him, uh, he's saying your focus is on needs. Your focus is on helping. Your focus is on picking up. By the way, you sometimes have to pick up after kids. Has that ever happened? Even if you told them, you still sometimes have to pick up after them. You have to remind. You have to instruct. Uh, you're not ordering them around, though. You're not ordering them around. You're teaching them. You're teaching them. There's a big difference between teaching and dictating. It's like a parent who's adopting a child. A parent who's adopting a child is not adopting them to dominate them. 
They're adopting them to love and serve them and invest in them. True? That's why a parent adopts. They don't adopt. I want someone to order around. Why'd you adopt? I wanted someone to boss around. No, we wanted someone to love and invest in, and they would someday be a parent that would do the same and it would have impact on the world. The disciples and the apostles, they would be taught as the first church leaders that God's leaders are called to model humility and serving and to go low. That's what Jesus said. He said, uh, anyone, whoever is the least among you will be great. Jesus said, you really want to know what I'm going to reward in heaven? Go really low. Don't let men flatter you and puff up your ego. Go low. Keep focusing on children. Keep focusing on needs. Keep focusing on the things that other people think are not important. God thinks are important. So much in the scriptures is about leading by serving and the lower road being the route that we're to take. Galatians 5.13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only don't let your liberty be used as an opportunity to flesh, but through love serve one another. We've been called to serve one another, and it says liberty in that verse. We've actually been freed up to deny our flesh. Isn't that great? We've been freed up to deny our flesh. We no longer have to be dominated by I, 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 me, 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 self, self, self. Philippians 2, 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let others esteem, esteem others better than himself. If you're still not convinced, Paul goes on uh, to say, if, if that doesn't convince you to esteem others better than yourself, go a little lower. He goes on the same second chapter of Philippians to say, let me just bring it home, Paul says, to Jesus who made himself, verses 7 and 8, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as man, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul says, all right, if you can't consider others better than yourself, if you can't take a servant role in life and serve other people and go low and meet needs and wipe faces and all those things, might I remind you, Paul said, that Jesus went lower than all of us combined. He actually left the throne of heaven to be a servant. He washed the disciples' feet. Then he died on the cross, showing the whole world that he, matter of fact, this is why some religions like Islam reject Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, because no God of theirs would actually do such lowly things and die. The Greeks rejected it too. The Greeks could not understand how a truly powerful God would die as a sacrificial servant. And that's who God is. Because he says, that's the model. Moms and dads, he wants you living that way. Pastors, he wants you living that way. Businessman, he wants you living that way. Construction worker, he wants you living that way. Everywhere you go, there's people to serve. Last thing, and I only got a couple of minutes, just just wrap up with strengthening here. Uh, I have the least to say about this, but it's still important. They saw someone casting out demons, and John, he's very proud of himself. He thinks he's about to get a pat on the back or a promotion. Lord, <laughs> we set him straight. He didn't, he's not part of us, so uh, we put him in his place. We told him, uh, you can't do this. We forbade him. It's taken care of, Lord. We took care of it. We excommunicated that guy. We got, it, we got him out of the way. Wacky denomination down the street. They don't know what they're doing, but we, we set them straight. Strengthening. We're not to be tearing down our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're to be strengthening them in prayer and encouragement. It's true. We're either part of the solution or we're part of the problem. Right? We're either making the body of Christ stronger or we're making it weaker. I was riding my bike earlier this week, and I rode through the parking lot of a I won't even say the denomination. Uh, Good-sized church, a lot bigger church than us. And by the way, larger churches attract people that are seeking much easier because people can get lost in a crowd. I got saved at a huge church in Fort Lauderdale, 20,000 people. It's a lot harder for people to come in here. I know it. It's harder for people. It's smaller. You know, you can be seen. But this church that I, I've met some of the elders there. I've met some of the uh, pastoral staff. They're a different church than us, a good bit larger church. 
but as I was riding to the parking lot, I immediately just started praying for that ministry, that souls would be coming to Christ there too. I don't know what they preach from the pulpit. I know they preach the truth. I don't know if there's things that they just won't touch on because that'll be too touchy or that'll be too controversial. But that's not my concern at the end of the day. It is a concern, but my bigger one is that God just guides and directs. I just prayed for that ministry. I was riding through the parking lot on my bike. I love their football field, by the way. I get to run on it and stuff like that. And I just praying for the ministry and that God would use it. It doesn't matter. They're not a Calvary chapel. Proverbs 11.25 says, And he who waters will also himself be watered. You start praying for other people and just stop being, we stop being so biased and we, we have all the answers, God will really use us more and more. Amen? We serve others. We don't have all the answers. D.L. Moody said, You may find hundreds of fault finders among professed Christians. But all of their criticism will not lead one solitary soul to Christ. Isn't that true? If you meet someone who's a Christian and incredibly negative, the last thing anyone wants to do is come to Christ. Negative about everything. Tearing other people down. Cutting things down. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another doesn't mean that I agree with every single believer on everything, but that's a far cry from being nonstop critical and, and slicing up and saying, yeah, Jesus, we, we set them straight. We told them, stop doing anything in the name of the Lord. You don't know what you're doing. There are some Christians who spend so much time and energy picking at fault of other denominations and ministry. I mean, they read websites nonstop. They read books nonstop. Always fault-finding. How much is that helping people come to Christ? It's not at all. I've learned so much from other ministries, other pastors, other leaders, saints from non-Calvary chapels. I've learned from a lot of them, Baptist pastors, some Presbyterian, Messianic, some Methodist, you know, just down through the ages as well. Many, many great, great men and women that the Lord has used. But I firmly, now, be clear, I firmly believe in what the Lord is doing in Calvary chapels. We have dozens of them now in Russia. We have dozens of them in West Africa, Central Africa, South Africa. We've got Calvary chapels in the Middle East. We've got them now planted in Japan. We've got them around the world. And we really believe that verse-by-verse -verse teaching has a transformational effect on life. We believe that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit matter. I believe in what God gave Pastor Chuck, but I also believe other ministries are doing great things for the Lord too. And we're all running on the same track, as Pastor Damien Kyle said, we're just in different lanes. And there's different tribes in the, in, the, in the body of Christ that God uses. Some God will use to reach Sam Nadler and, and their Jewish culture, reach Jewish people better than some other people do. Different ministries reach people differently. I believe in what the Lord is doing through Calvary Chapel. I know I'm personally called to be a Calvary Chapel pastor. I hope you're called to be in this ministry, but there are other Ministries. I believe that uh, the fact that we don't have a deep structural hierarchy is good for our fellowship of churches. But again, I'm not dogmatic about that, and I think many other ministries are used in a great way. There's still many other great works of God happening in other churches and other ministries. And I personally, I would rather work together with them on reaching the world from Christ than working against them. How about you? God used D.L. Moody so much in that way. You know, D.L. Moody was used, and I'll, I'll bring it to a close, when D.L. Moody in the late 1800s, you know he brought pastors together that didn't even like each other? He brought ministries together that would never have anything to do with each other. They were so, they're like, we reject that thinking out hand, we don't even talk to them. God used him. He was a lightning rod. He brought many different ministries together in London, in Chicago, and New York, People got saved of every uh, ethnic background, black, white, Asian, all across the board. He brought these different churches together through the Holy Spirit. It wasn't like he even tried. He wasn't even trying to do it. It's just the anointing of the Holy Spirit was upon him, and God did that work. And, you know, God's done that down through the ages. Billy Graham at Crusades and things like that, Pastor Greg, even last week in Dallas, and God wants to do that. Now, I want to say this. It is biblically wrong. And it's dangerous, and it's harmful to unite under false teaching and under false doctrine. We can't do that. We can never do that. 
But it's also wrong to divide over non-essential things, to divide over denominations, divide over group, to divide over cultures, and divide over personal preferences. Right? It's wrong to it's wrong to unite under false, but it's also wrong to divide over things that just aren't that important. I love the way some cultures worship, even if it's different than ours. I love the way some people teach, even though it's different than ours. Matter of fact, I like to listen to a lot of different teaching. My pastor, Loran, uh, from Central Church of God, when we were down in Charlotte, he's not like hardly any Calvary Chapel pastors. He'll stomp and preach. I actually think the longer I might start stomping and preaching more down the road, but... Um, <laughs> I really think so. I told my wife that other day. I said, I think that's going to happen to me down the road. I think there's going to be a new element. <laughs> I said, because the more I read the scriptures, I kind of get a taste of all the different men God used. And if that happens, well, you'll be weirded out, but you'll get over it. <laughs> anyway, that's so unlike you. Well, hey, God does things that... But let's look to build bridges between the children of God. Amen? That's what the Lord is saying. Say, look, they're, they're not against us. I had, we had dinner as a family Friday night with a, with a pastor uh, or the family that's headed to uh, Europe. And they, go, they attend a Reformed church. And I was there to give him my background on being bivocational, how it could help him. God wants us helping one another. This is the thing. We need to understand what's unscriptural versus what's debatable and non-essential. There are different views on tongues. There's different views on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's different views on the rapture of the church, the role of free will and grace. I have my firm beliefs on these things, but they're not the things that are divisive to me with other believers that I know love the Lord, but just have a different view on that. Amen? I want to personally and us collectively to be marked as those who love the truth, but we also serve Christ and those around us, and we serve him full of love and of grace, and we're the true friends and helpers of our brothers and sisters, both in this church and outside of this church. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Uh, worship team, once you come up, once you stand, we'll just close in a short song, and um, we had the extra announcements this morning with uh, uh, the um, marriage retreat. Thanks for bearing with, uh, uh, you know, I was trying to pull off something that, uh, I know we're not trying to pull it off. If the Lord's in it, you know, we'll, we'll take a group of couples and it'll be a blessing. Uh, if the Lord's just getting us that more prepped and excited for 2015, I'm fine with that too. But, um, but uh, just take a moment, worship, and I'll close some prayer in just a minute here. And just take a moment just to thank the Lord. Uh, you know, when we come in here, I hope that, you know, you, we, the title of today's message and study was Maturing Disciples, Maturing as Disciples. And I hope that's your desire, that not just to come here and have it go in one ear and out the other, but that we would actually leave here. Think about those three things. They're so tangible that we actually would search more for God's voice in our life, for God's guidance, that we actually would be more servant-hearted, esteeming others better than ourselves, and lastly, less divisive and more building bridges. Amen? Amen worship for just a moment and I'll close in prayer.